But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily, remember right away in Jude, shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, remember Jude, how they're reserved to judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that, should, that after should live ungodly. You remember verse 7 of Jude, Sodom and Gomorrah are, are undergoing uh, eternal, rat, uh, eternal fire and delivered just Lot vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked for that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations you have the, the um, protective preservation and to reserve the punitive preservation of the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished, but chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. Mentions Michael, not bringing... Um, railing accusation against Satan in Jude, but these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed speak evil of the things that they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption and, it, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are in blemishes, perhaps <coughs> parallel to spots in your feasts of charity, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you, the feasts of charity in Jude, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls and heart that have exercised, they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, which have forsaken the right way and, gone, and are gone astray following the way of Balaam, also mentioned in Jude, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Now this isn't mentioned in Jude, but was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumb ass speaking with man's voice. What a miracle, wasn't it? Forbade the madness of the prophet. Now he adds <clears throat> a metaphor uh, that describes the false teachers. These are wells without water. Now, he does mention clouds in Jude. Clouds that are carried with a tempest to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. 
For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through their lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, to, than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Now notice two more metaphors of, of the wicked. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is returned to his own vomit and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire, wallowing in the mud. Now let's look at Jude. And now, again, keep your mind on what was just read in Second Peter. Now we, we looked we read the first <clears throat> the first six verses, so I would like to I would, well I like to pick up with verse six. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left to their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains. He so, he says hell in Second Peter, under darkness unto the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. So he mentions that, the particular sins here of, of uh, immorality and especially homosexuality are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So it speaks of them having consciousness, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally is brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them! For they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Cori. These are spots, perhaps um, reefs, in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds, they are without water, carried about of winds. Trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame. Wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now he quotes an apocryphal book. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly. Notice how he describes them over and over again as ungodly. 
all that are ungodly among them, of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves sensual, having not the Spirit. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And if some have compassion, making a difference. And others save with fear. Pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment that was spotted by the flesh. Now unto Him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy, the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. What a powerful... We often call this a book, but it's, it's a, it could have fit on one papyri page, perhaps. But what a powerful epistle by Jude. I don't think there could be any stronger language in the New Testament other than Matthew 23, woe unto you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, than what we find in Jesus' half-brother. Now, you talk about preaching the whole counsel of God. In Jude, you have heaven to gain and hell to shun. You find that hell is prevalent in the book of Jude. He spares no language uh, regarding these false teachers You remember from last week that Jude shows his humility by calling himself a slave and not a brother of Jesus Christ. He could have taken advantage, even materially speaking, if he would recognize himself as a half-brother of Jesus. It just goes to show you what kind of family came from the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, a very humble family. Uh, there's a record of, of um, the Roman... Uh, well, I was going to say the Roman pontiff, but no, not the Roman pontiff, though he was pontifical. The, uh, the Caesar and the Roman governments being concerned about these Christians that seem to preach the authority of one Jesus Christ. And they were concerned about uh, their uh, political ambitions, perhaps. And, and they had some people scout if there were any relatives of this Jesus Christ that were living. And they found many of his relatives, obviously uh, descendants of, of Mary and uh, of Joseph, they found many of them in Palestine but they recognized they were just laborers and farmers. There were no political ambitions. They were very humble in nature and very 
uh, gentlemanly and, and womanly and just serving the Lord. Uh, as Jesus said, that we are to work by the sweat of our face and, and to be servants of one another and to honor authorities. But it's an interesting uh, piece of history uh, that there were no uh, relatives that had any political ambitions and any, any uh, um, testimony of any rabble-rousing. And here is Jude, perhaps the youngest of Jesus' brothers, calling him a slick, himself a slave, though he acknowledged he was a brother of James to get people to understand exactly who he was. So Jude was not uh, an apostle. He d- distinguishes himself from the apostles, as you remember from verse 17. Remember the words were spoken of the apostles. There were two Judes or Judases or Judas among the apostles. One committed suicide and the other was also called Thaddeus and Lebius. He was Jude. <clears throat> That's not this author. It's the half-brother of Jesus mentioned in Matthew 13 and John or, or Mark 6 among maybe one or two other passages, by name anyway. <clears throat> so you see the humility of this man that he wasn't seeking to uh, make a name for himself which so many might do if they were related in such a way to uh, a dignitary. But Jude is a man that spares no words for these false teachers and bringing in damnable heresies as, as he read Peter mentioned. And so he's finding that the same dangers are occurring among the people of God as well as what Peter found. So you see here that that, uh, they were the the writers of Scripture were reading each other if they could, if there were writings before, and certainly reading the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, three times he used the word beloved. So you see his soft side, his his gentle side speaking to the believers who are reading his letter, but then you see his tough side, his, his uh, uh, militant side when we read verses like, these are spots in your feast of charity and clouds without water and um, trees without fruit and, and raging waves of the sea and foaming out their own shame. And even Peter had some very vivid illustrations of these people. Dogs who eat up their own vomit and pigs that return to their own mud. Now you say, is that kind of these men? Well, I, I, think, they're, I, I think they could have been kinder. They could have been uh, more vicious, perhaps. But they're showing that false teachers are damnable. They, 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 don't, want to take, they don't want to go alone to hell like the devil. They're just like the devil and his angels. They want to sweep others in with them into the blackness of darkness forever. And I've taken the, the, the three sections where he speaks of them as beloved ones, loved ones, and we're looking at Jude writing to a, a beloved church, yes, a beleaguered church, a church that's in a very difficult position, and a built-up church. Uh, certainly. So we look, we, look, we look at these three sections and then the, the, the benediction and the uh, doxology at the, the last two verses is certainly a church 
again, that is, that is eternally blessed. And again, I don't know if I'll be able to, to finish the whole letter. But it's a letter from the Lord through His servant Jude. And you see the position of the people of God. These are all passive participles. They're, they're called, they're sanctified, and they're preserved. And the fact that they're passive means that they're objects of someone else's action, which indicates that their salvation is received. It's a gift from God. So these believers, we believers, are uses three, but there are many other um, aspects of the gospel. The word called probably is the first in idea because it's, it's also, um, it goes with those that are the same uh, plurality as um, them verse, and, and called are the same plural. So probably called goes before sanctified and preserved. And you can understand that, that uh, the effectual call, your call to salvation. Many may have heard the outward call of preachers and believing family members and radio messages and you hear an outward call and you, and you can resist that. But the elect is going to experience a day when they cannot resist the call of God. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. There is that effectual call that cannot be resisted and thank the Lord that it cannot be resisted or we would have resisted every call. So we're called people. There's a day when we heard that voice of the Lord saying, uh, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Believe on me. Trust in me for your salvation. Have you been called effectually savingly by the Lord Jesus? Have you heard the voice of the Good Shepherd calling you back to the fold? Well, He speaks of those who are called, those who have been set apart, sanctified. You have certainly the, the uh, aspect of sanctification here, separate unto the Lord and, and uh, being made holy. So it's very similar to be called saints who are sanctified ones and those who are preserved. And we ought to be grateful for the doctrine of preservation or perseverance of the saints. There is a preservation that the Lord ensures, guarantees to us. Or again, we would lose our salvation if we could. But the Lord has this, this uh, protective preservation. So these are all passive in nature. We're saved by sovereign grace. But then there are those that are preserved. It's a punitive preservation. And we read about that both in Second Peter and in, in Jude. For instance, in verse 6, they've, the angels that left their own habitation, he hath reserved... Preserved, the same word is preserved in verse 1, although it's translated reserved. So they're both synonyms. They're, but they're the same Greek words. He hath preserved, but it's punitive in nature. They're in everlasting chains under darkness, under the judgment of the great day. Interesting, in Second Peter, he, 
he says that, that they're in hell. So that's why we, we say that these are probably not free demons that just are uh, preserved for that day of judgment when it comes. Because in Second Peter chapter 2, if you remember, it says that um, they're in hell. Bereans can help me find that. Is my, my, oh, thank you. Verse 4 says, God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell. So, if indeed Jude's reading this, he's indicating the same thing. But interestingly, the word hell in 2 Peter 2.4 is the word Tartarus. So, it's not the same word as hell normally, which is the word Hades, or also... Um, well, Hades is, is the word for the temporary place of punishment. The permanent place is called Gehenna or the Lake of Fire, but they're both called hell. It's just that Hades technically has an entrance and an exit, where the Lake of Fire, Gehenna, only has an entrance. It does not have an exit. But Peter is saying that some are in a place called Tartarus. We're not exactly sure whether it's just a portion of... It's, it, 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 is, it, is it a portion of Hades? Is, it is like you have some prisoners that are in the general population of the prison and then you have other prisoners that are in isolated... What do you call it? Uh, isolated seclusion or uh, what's the official word for it? That they're in um, solitary confinement. It just may be a place of solitary confinement in Hades. So I I think it's not just referring to angels that are reserved to Judgment Day to to go to hell, but there's actually a portion of them that are an example, you might say, to the fallen demons. That this is, they know some of their colleagues are locked up, and uh, they know their time is short, and they know what they're going to get. And it's always certainly an ominous thing to know that what's going to happen. They told the, the um, pilots and the gunners and the radio men that were in those planes that were attacking the Japanese islands that you can, under, you can, you can understand that if, you're, if you have to bail out and you're a POW on these islands that you're facing a very difficult situation. You're probably going to be tortured or killed. Executed, which was the case in certainly uh, Chichi Jima and even on Iwo Jima. And President George H.W. Bush uh, almost became a prisoner of war and would have been executed like the eight or other men that were on that island before Japan surrendered, but he was rescued by a submarine just in time. But these, these demons know their time is short. They know there are some POWs being held uh, uh, and being tortured and being uh, under God's judgment and they know that their time is short. They're not going to win the battle uh, to free their, their comrades and to deliver themselves. The devil knows his time is short and the demons know that God is omnipotent and just, and a God of wrath toward them. So, we find 
the position of the people of God, the position of those who are lost, at least the angels. But uh, notice their prospect. They're certainly recipients of God's grace, but it's not mentioned here. Often grace is, is in the uh, greeting. Mercy, peace, and love. They're certainly recipients of God's grace that they're saved, but they're recipients of God's compassion, mercy, His communion with them, peace, and His commitment to them, His love. Mercy, peace, and love, which is already in measure, but He says, may it be multiplied to you. What does that mean? We have a measure of God's grace, mercy, peace, and love, and so on. We already have that in measure, but how, how, how do you unpack the prayer by Jude and the concept that may God multiply this to you? That's His will. That's what Jude's saying. He's not just imagining this and just coining this as some kind of cheerleading gesture. He's saying this from the Lord. And so the Lord is saying to you and me, why do you expect just a, a drop of mercy, peace, and love? Or a little thimbleful? Shouldn't you be praying for and expecting showers of blessing? Multiplication of these gifts. In other words, a tremendous outflow from God. An overwhelming help from the Lord. That's what it's saying. Why are we underestimating the Lord? Don't we? We... We feel like we just are barely getting enough where we should be praying, Lord, overwhelm me with Your mercy, peace, and love. We're His loved ones. He calls us beloved. And so, what a blessing. What a blessed start to this letter. So, what someone called a Jude moment happened. And all of us had have Jude moments. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. So he was going to write about the gospel. He was going to write about salvation through the Lord Jesus and some aspect of the good news of salvation. He had a change of mind. It was needful for me to write unto you and, to, and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the, for, the, for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So, here was the change of sermon moment. And maybe if you've ever taught some uh, Sunday school or you've ever preached, there's been times where you've had to change it very quickly. Like when 9-11 occurred. How many people had prepared their messages or at least intended to because it happened on a Tuesday. But we're in series. We're going through books. And we knew we had to change our message to something like meaning and disaster. Or some, it was obviously, we couldn't just preach, it just wasn't right to preach the next message in a series. It was just that um, notable or notorious moment. And that's happened in, among many, many people. I was listening to one pastor who was saying that um, there was a great emergency in his town uh, and some terrorist moment and he just, this was like on a Saturday night or it might have even been when he was about to go into the pulpit. And it's happened before where a person has, a, has to change his message because of a, 
a, a providence that occurs in the world. He's saying, look, the gospel's threatened. And I have an emergency to share with you. He says, it was an emergency for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend. Now notice, now it's active. It's not passive. Now, he says, you've got to make the effort. It's God that has showed you mercy and peace and love. You're recipients. You're passive. But now you've got to take up active arms. Earnestly contend. The word agonize is in that word. It just draws up thoughts of, of sweat, blood, sweat, and tears, and effort, and struggle, and wrestling. He's saying you've got to be militant. You've got to defend the faith. But I thought like Spurgeon said, the faith, faith is like a lion. All you need to do is let it out of its cage and it will defend itself. Well, in a sense that's true, but someone has to preach what, it, what the Gospel says. Someone has to rescue uh, those who are being drawn and sucked into the heresies and false teachings. He said, look, God's given us one message, one book. That's it. That's what He means. Earnestly contend for the faith. What did I say was the, 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 the literal rendition of this? The once delivered unto the saints' faith. That's exactly what it says in the original. The once. Once. God says, this is it. There's no other Gospel. There's no other Bible. There's no other message that saves. There's only one. That's what he means. Once delivered unto the saints. I mean, that shows you how serious this is when people are adding to the message or replacing the message. This is speaking of the whole counsel of God that it's been delivered. It's not going to be delivered. It's been delivered. And it's our lot until we are in glory when the church becomes triumphant, to be militant. Doesn't Paul use soldiers as a picture of believers? Those wrestlers who are not beating the air? But that speaks of effort, toil, struggle, fight. Fight the good fight of faith, he says. Why, Paul? What's so so, uh, dangerous? He says there are false teachers that are among us, that are creeping in. And so, I had to change what I wanted to say because this was most important. There's one body of truth, one body of doctrine that unites us. There are certain truths that unite us. Errors are that which divide us. And we need to see what those very important um, cardinal doctrines are that we must not agree to disagree about. There are some things that are secondary. The modes of baptism. But there are some things that are absolutely necessary. Our cardinal doctrines that cannot, uh, we cannot discuss or we cannot uh, agree to disagree about. That is, the deity of Jesus Christ, salvation by grace, a heaven that's real and a hell that's forever. The Trinity of God, the monotheism, and so on. All these are cardinal doctrines of the faith. 
So he says, you're a beloved church, but brothers and sisters, we're a beleaguered church, verses 4 to 19. We're in a very difficult situation. We're infiltrated. It's something we need to agonize over. It's like, again, the wars. Think about the soldiers in Ukraine that are, that are attacked. They're beleaguered. They're, they're, they're in fighting mode all the time. They're on the edge of their seats, as it were. They're, they're, uh, they realize that it's, it's a matter of life and death every moment. And so we need to see this as well. And you say, well, maybe our church doesn't have the infiltration and the danger. But brothers and sisters, we've got the sense that all over the world, there are many brothers and sisters and many churches that are at war. Real war. So we can't just say, well, it's not affecting me. Like so many of the farmers in some of those war sections of Europe that weren't at war, as it were, and they had all the food in the world on the farms. And they would eat and just run around the barns and vomit it up so they'd be hungry and eat the rest of their food. So let us not sit back and say, well, it's peace here. But let us pray for all the countries that are suffering, all the people of God that are in concentration camps, that are at war with false teachers and false doctrines. Again, Jew doesn't mince his words, does he? He says these people are, are unsaved. They're ungodly men, verse 4. They have not the Spirit, verse 19. They're not saved. They're dishonest. They creep in unawares, undetected, under the radar. Beware. He doesn't really give us much as far as what their doctrine is. Peter calls it damnable heresies, but he doesn't tell us what it is. But we can know from history what these damnable heresies are, but we've got the damnable heresies around us. We've got the Russell, the, the, the Jehovah Witnesses that say that, that heaven, that, that hell is is imaginary that 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 people are going to be uh, uh, they're going to be annihilated annihilationism if you're not a believer that um, Jesus Christ is not divine he's not equal with the Father those are damnable heresies those are keeping people deceived and we have to thank the Lord that during the pandemic they weren't allowed to go door to door. But how many of you received their letters asking for you to respond to them? Uh, they've sent out letters left and right all over the neighborhoods. And you say, well, they're not in the church. But that's in the church to send people, the people of God these letters. Like, like snakes trying to, uh, trying to draw draw their prey into their mouths. They're dishonest. They, they say they're believers, but they're creeping in and they're actually unbelievers and they're seeking to be undetected. They distort the grace of God. Peter says filthy, they're filthy lives. They turn the grace of God to lasciviousness, lasciviousness or unbridled lust. In other words, they focus on the fact that, you know, a little... A little immorality isn't going to hurt. An affair is, is, is nothing really that big. They distort the grace of God into immorality. 
They disregard the authority of God in Christ. Peter says they speak evil of dignities and they deny the Lord. Interesting. Peter, interestingly, says that that bought them. And there are people that say, see, Christ's death was universal. He died for every single soul. It says that even the false teachers denied the Lord who bought them. We understand the Bible can't say what it can't say. So as you compare with other Scriptures... The conclusion is that these people thought that Jesus was one who universally died for people. So the conclusion is what it says and what it means is they deny the Lord who they say bought them. They do not, it is not teaching the universal uh, and, and uh, unlimited death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ did not fail to save anyone that he purchased by his own blood. Just like he said, I have lost none of them but the son of perdition. And he wasn't conceding to a loss with Judas. He was saying Judas' loss was because of the Scriptures, not because I let him slip between my fingers. And these are denying the authority of Christ. They deny the deity of Jesus. They deny His authority, His power. And they focus attention on them themselves, but they're, they despise dominion, verse 8. They're, they're not respectful of, of church officers. They're not respectful of church government. They're not respectful of the, the um, inspiration and the authority of the Bible. They're self-centered. We're told they're, they feed themselves without fear. Remember Ezekiel, that the shepherds fed themselves and not the sheep. And they, they have at least nine examples from the Old Testament and outside the Old Testament um, describing these people. And of course, Peter adds that fact that these were wells without water and dogs and pigs. I mean, these are disgusting illustrations, but these are disgusting people. So they go all the way back early in Genesis, speaking of Cain, don't they? Well, let's, let's start with the angels first that left not their first estate. They kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. It speaks, no doubt, of the fall of Lucifer and his angels. How the Lord uh, set them apart to be punitively judged. And some of them are getting a portion of what the rest are going to get in full one day. And so the Lord says, look, there's, a, there's some people in solitary confinement, some angels, and we know that He's going to make sure that all the fallen angels will get their due. And then He speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities that were around them. They gave themselves over to fornication. In other words, they knew better. That's the point. Like Romans says, that they knew in conscience that God had had uh, had a particular uh, had particular boundaries for men and women, and they wanted to cross the boundaries. They were rebellious against the Lord. They went after different flesh, that is, men with men, like Romans says, and women with women, and they're set forth for an example. For the Lord took a portion of Hades and poured it out upon Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities. And it says, and you know, people will say, well, that's just a metaphor that God 
Uh, no, it says he literally burned the cities. And it says here, they're suffering. Not going to suffer. They're suffering the vengeance. So in other words, there's consciousness among these fallen Sodomites and those who lived in Gomorrah. In other words, the homosexuals are suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Notice it's eternal in nature. He says that these false teachers are dreamers. I have a dream, they might say. And in my dream, I was taught that Jesus is not really God. That He's just an exalted man. Well, what will we do with a dreamer like that? He's out the door, out the front door, not just the back door. They defile the flesh, they despise dominion, they speak evil of dignities. They exalt dreams over the Word of God. That's, that's a sure point. And they're disrespectful. Look at even Michael. Now, what, is it, what does it mean that he was contending with the devil? We know from Deuteronomy chapter 34 that God, what a privilege, that God uh, buried Moses. That's special. To be buried by God? What a graveside service that was. I wonder if anyone was in, 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 let in. I wonder if any angels were there. And what I have forgotten to mention, do you know there were myriads of angels at Mount Sinai? We're told that in Psalm 68. There were many angelic... Um, what's the, what am I going to say? They were, they were angelic hosts. They were all around. It says the chariots of God are 10,000 times 10,000. It's talking about angels. And perhaps the people could sense the presence of all these dignitaries. But here is an archangel to another archangel. Instead of, now, what was the point here? One of the best explanations that I've ever read is that the devil wanted to know where Moses was buried so that he could get people to worship the the. Grave of Moses. I mean, why does the devil... He has so many things up his sleeve. He wants people to make shrines of everything under the sun. And, the, and Michael, though he may have known indeed where the grave was, he wasn't going to tell him where it was. But in, in debating with the devil, he was respectful. Think of that. He was respectful to Lucifer. That tells us something about even how we should, even how we should speak to those that are in authority and yet are rascals that we need to honor the office. And yet, like Jude does, he, he warns these people of their false doctrines. They speak evil of those things which they know not. He calls them brute beasts. The word is ignorant. Ignorant beasts. It's like one man said, the, the average... The average, uh, may I say, the average seminary professor and doctor in the seminary today doesn't know as much of the Bible as the average member of a godly church. And I would not have second qualms about that. They have all kinds of degrees after their names. But all they're doing is studying like... We often read, they're, they're studying what Dr. So-and-so said and what did Dr. So-and-so say, like the Pharisees. And yet, 
they have little knowledge of what the Bible actually says and means. Like Jesus would say to the Pharisees, have you not studied? Search the Scriptures? Do you not know that David's descendant would be greater than David? The Bible says that. You should know it. Now, granted, we can't say Jude is being disrespectful, unlike Michael. He's calling a spade a spade, as it were. And he's calling, he's calling white white and black black. And he's saying, Woe unto these people, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They hated grace righteousness. Cain hated, Esau, Cain hated Abel because Abel trusted in God's grace for his salvation. They ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward. Again, works righteousness. They, they covet people's things rather than they covet truth. They perish like Korah in their gainsaying, their, uh, their ridicule of Moses and Aaron and the truth. These are spots or perhaps reefs. You know how dangerous a reef can be for, for a boat. I, couldn't, I can't help but think of the Titanic in verse 12. Even though it wasn't a reef, it was a... What, what did the... An iceberg underneath the surface. But the illustration uh, fits. You're, you're sailing along and these people are creeping in and they're damnable heresies and their false doctrine and their self-centered lives. All of a sudden, you strike below the surface, as it were, and you drown. You're killed by the influence of these reefs and icebergs who are feasting with you. Perhaps the Feast of Charity is referring to the Lord's Supper. And David mentions Ahithophel, that he walked to God's house together. And some of these people that turn out to be false teachers and heretics were people you and I may have prayed with, visited and had coffee with. They're self-centered. They feed themselves without fear. You know what clouds without water are to a farmer who desperately needs water? Believers desperately need fellowship and they need the truth and these people are, are, are bringing messages that have no, no meat to them. They're deceitful teachers. They're carried about with winds. Obviously, they're being carried like timble, tumbleweeds themselves. Trees without fruit that withers. Isn't it wonderful to go up to a fruit tree that has nice, juicy, sweet fruit on it? I'd never seen a grapefruit tree. You know, grapefruit comes in boxes. It doesn't come in trees. But down in Florida, when we visited for the first time, Tanya's dad and his two brothers owned um, a little trailer court there. But at that time, they owned a home in the corner. And they, they sold it. But in the front yard of the of the home was a grapefruit tree. And it was the perfect season. You know, these little grapefruits that you get are, are you know, bitter. And, 
they don't have much to them. But you know what I'm talking about. The big grapefruits. The big yellow or, or pink grapefruits that are just, you just, my mother used to cut it in half and she had this little, you know, it would look like a, something that, that, that bent. I don't know what it was. It was a little knife and she'd go down each vein and instead of, you know, eating it like an orange, you guys know, I, I'm just, I, I, this is all I knew. You take one little spoon and you go around the whole thing and you eat it's, it. It's not much to it. So I would just take it after you squeeze it into a bowl. And I, that was the best part of it to me, to, to drink the rest. Of the, you know, I, do we have any grapefruit at home today? There's something to look forward to. But, you know, but when you walk up to a tree and there's nothing there, like Jesus walked up to that fig tree, wasn't it? And it should have had figs. And there was nothing there. Well, these men purport to be fruitful and purport to be you know, doctors of the law, doctors of Scripture. And you walk away saying, there wasn't any sweetness to it at all. It was bitter. What illustrations. These are all mixed metaphors, aren't they? twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea foaming out their own shame. You can see it, can't you, when you're at the ocean. All that foam that comes up on the, on the shore and on the sh- in, the, in the shallow water. Wandering stars, falling stars as it were. The word is actually planets, I think the word stars is, but the, that's the point is that it's not like earth that has oxygen and green grass and fruitful trees. They're lifeless. You know, we're making all this effort to go to the moon and go to Mars. What are they finding there? Martians? Cheese? On the moon? These people are wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness Forever. And can we spill over into Peter? You ever seen a dog eat up its own vomit? I saw a dog eat up another dog's feces. I was probably your age. How do I remember all that? I was playing in the playground of, of, of a grammar school. I walked over to the fence for some reason. I saw this black dog. I remember it was a hairy black dog. What's he doing? And I saw the feces. And he went right up there and consumed it all. And I said, how filthy is this? But you know, you can't forget images like that. That's exactly what this is saying. And have you ever seen, now you've owned pigs. Have you ever washed a pig? Given a, you should give it a bath sometime and then let it go and see what it does, especially on a rainy day. What are they going to do? You wash up these people, you call them elders and you and you let them be members of the church. And what are they going to do when they're let loose? They're going to go right back to the mud. And what a description of the believer who on Sunday sits in church and on Monday goes back to the mud. Enoch prophesied of them and he had no good words to spare. The Lord is coming. Think of this. He didn't, he didn't prophesy the first coming of the Lord. He may have. And this, by the way, is not giving our... There's, in no way is this saying that we should have included the Apocrypha into the canon. 
nor does it mean that Paul was wrong to quote three secular poets, like Epimenides, for instance, in the book of Acts. It's just saying that what they said fits for what the Bible describes of these false teachers. Enoch prophesied of the second coming of Christ, verse 14, and he says what's going to happen at the second coming is the Lord is going to execute condemnation, judgment upon all, without exception of these false teachers. He's going to convince, yea, convict, but convince of all, all of them of their ungodliness and their ungodly deeds which they've committed ungodly and their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Jude, you're wearing me out with these horrible descriptions. I haven't finished. They're murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts. Then their mouth speaks great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. And you know, I can almost see Jude panting at this point as he dictates or writes this letter. But you can see he calms down in the last part of his letter. You can see how a person can be tough and tender at the same time. But he had nothing but toughness for these heretics and false teachers. And you can see that his emotion was no doubt caught by this church. And these, it's a general letter to the people who would read and have this letter read to them. Yes, yes sir, yes Jude, we realize that we need to put on the whole armor of God. We need to be ready to combat and to eject these false teachers from the saints, from the church. And we need to be careful to be good soldiers of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I'm going to conclude with uh, verse 16 today. I trust that the Lord will I I trust He's instilled within us a a real concern for the kingdom of God and for the people of God, especially the sheep that are are weak or the elect that have not yet been converted, that the Lord would keep them from, from going into these heresies and cults and save them outright and bring them in to solid churches in the kingdom of God and honor His name by purifying His people. Amen.